Thinner Logs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy grounded in shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Hi everyone, my name is Eric Arnell, and this is part two of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories March 2014 podcast, in which we return to the theme of fan fiction. This month, we're joined by guests from the comedy production studio Peaches and Hot Sauce, as well as some folks from the Chicago Nerd Comedy Festival, which just took place this past weekend and was absolutely wonderful. In fact, look for a bonus episode of Your Stories recorded at the fest next Monday. So this time, we're going to hear from speakers Shelby Mongan, Johnny O'Mara, Nate Bechtel, James D'Amato, CJ Tour, and Patrick O'Rourke, plus you'll get the usual music from myself and Dwight Hassler. Uh, if you enjoy the Your Stories podcast, you should come to the next one, uh, which is Sunday, April 20th, 7pm, at the Public House Theater, where we'll be featuring the wonderful folks from Improvised X-Files, and the theme will, of course, be The Truth, parentheses, is out there. Definitely check out Improvised X-Files, running every Friday night at 10pm at the Playground Theater, by the way. And finally, make sure to keep up with all the Nerdalog's latest doings by visiting our recently redesigned and beautiful website, www.nerdalogs.com. There you can watch our weekly video releases and also check out all four of our podcasts, like Your Stories, The Nerdalogcast, MBSing with Mary Beth Smith, and Talking Games with Tim and Clayton. Also, remember, if you have any feedback on our podcast, you can call our voicemail line at 405-JAW-NERD, J-A-W-N-E-R-D, to leave us your thoughts. So thanks everyone for listening and enjoy the show. Here's a song that does not belong at a comedy show.
beneath the stains of time. belongs at a comedy show. It features the mean melodica skills of Dwight Hassler. Yeah. Yeah. The Dwight Hassler. There's only one. Google it. There's only one. It's me. All right. Constantinople, 
that's no, but it's business for the Turks. Istanbul. So we have a very special speaker in the audience. Uh, she would tell a story every month, and they were always wonderful. And then she left us to go to Dayton, Ohio, to go to school. She's a terrible person. She's like, oh, she's uh, but but she is back. This is her first year story since leaving for grad school because she's in for a Valentine's weekend. Yeah, Shelby yeah, Mondin. Shelby Mondin. <laughs> um. So it's in. God damn, it's bright. Um, so this is really appropriate that I am here. Uh, that I'm here for this month, uh, as those of you who were here last year know, I'm obsessed with fan fiction. I have been for years. Um, and I told a very impassioned story about Neopets. Um, and so I was considering for this month to read some of my fan fiction. Uh, so I went back on fanfiction.net, um, and I thought, like, Maybe I would subject you to some of my miracle fan fiction because it is the Olympic season. Um, but what I discovered when I was reading it is that it was not bad enough to be funny and not good enough to be impressive. <laughs> so I'm not going to read it. Although I did discover that between 2005 and 2006, when I was publishing on fan fiction, I wrote 119 pages total. Uh, no, it's not good. Don't clap for it. It's not good writing. I just wrote that much. Um, but one thing that I did notice looking at these stories is that I, they all had one really embarrassing thing in common, um, and that was that all of them featured um, an original character who was a quirky, brown-haired female <laughs> who was the love interest of whoever coincidentally was the most attractive person I thought of in the, in the show or the movie. Um, and as I sadly shook my head at stupid 13-year-old me, I decided to write a story about it. So um, this is... Uh, and it will get a little sappy, but it's Valentine's Day weekend, so you can't get mad about that. Um, so this is a letter to 13-year-old Shelby. <laughs> Dear Shelby, quit playing spider solitaire. I want to talk to you. <laughs> uh, I want to start off by saying kudos on your radio-free Roscoe fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know that it's an obscure show from Canada, uh, but you love it. And it's a solid contribution to the category, so keep that up. Um, but that's not why I'm here talking to you today. Um, I'm here to talk about your work. Think of me as like a critic with 2020 vision from the future. Um, I know that you spend a lot of your time in fantasy worlds uh, dreaming of the movies and the shows that you love. Um, and I'm not, I'm not here to tell you to stop doing that. In fact, I'm here to tell you that you don't ever stop doing that. Uh, although in the future, instead of dreaming about being uh, the love interest of Tom Welling in Supernatural, uh, you will dream of meeting Justin Vernon, the lead singer of Bon Iver, in a cafe in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Just wait till you see him and his music. Awesome. Um, and as someone who spends a lot of time in fantasy world, you actually write a lot of that down, and that's really good, and I'm... I'm proud to see that, but I have to point out something to you. Um, I don't think I'm surprising either of us when I say that all these original characters are just thinly veiled versions of you. Uh, and I know that 
you dreaming about being a love interest isn't just something that you write in your fan fictions, uh, and it isn't just about being in movies and TV. Uh, you've seen the gap that's formed between the middle school girls that the boys want to date and the middle school girls that the boys don't want to date. And no one has asked you to a dance before. So it's pretty clear which camp you're in. Um, oh, as a side note, if I ever catch you using the term friend zone to describe yourself, I will retroactively kick you in the face. <laughs> you don't wear fedoras and you're better than that. <laughs> I know that you tell yourself that it, it's not that big of a deal and that it's all it's okay that all your friends are guys and it's okay that you don't hang out with the girls and that no one asked you to the homecoming. I know that you tell yourself that's okay, but I know it also still hurts. Um, and so you hide in your stories about falling in love in the perfect ways, and I totally get that, but you've got it so remarkably wrong it's not even funny. So this guy in your head, he's like brooding... He looks remarkably like Josh Hartnett. <laughs> and he's a good Catholic boy who likes hockey and secretly digs Broadway. Um, and he's straight edge, just like you are as a 13-year-old. <laughs> so I'm here to tell you that in reality, the Prince Charming of your story... Uh, yeah, he's going to be an atheist and a divorcee and an alcoholic. And he looks a little like a Muppet. Um, and he has a tendency to yell, roll tide at strangers. And I know you have this dream of, um, like, some sort of meet cute and, like, you meet in a cafe and he notices the book you're reading and it's really romantic and then you fantasize about the great first date and then you jump forward to the proposal and it's so romantic and there's birds and there's singing. Um, in reality, uh, your Prince Charming is going to be someone you find really unappealing for a little while and then uh, you'll have a platonic dinner and then drunken bad decisions later. <laughs> and there's no fast forwarding in the story and it's slow and it's sometimes kind of boring and it's sometimes not that remarkable um no stop stop playing solitaire i'm trying to talk to you focus i'm not done with this story because i know it doesn't sound like the fairy tale that you were expecting and it isn't that's true a walk to remember lied to you, and I'm sorry, it's not always that perfect. And you won't die of cancer. At least not yet. <laughs> um, the, now I'm just worried about having cancer. <laughs> uh, but the thing that I can tell you is that that version is, is not great. This version is better. It, the little moments are the ones that are great. And, and the nicknames and the jokes and the, the quiet times in between reading Facebook on your phones before you get out of bed in the morning. It's all about those small moments. And the fantasies feel really nice. Like, they're super masturbatory, and I get it, and that's fine. Keep it up. It's a good creative exercise. But you don't yet know what it feels like to feel secure and to feel safe. Um, I have to say, it feels really similar to not worrying about having morning breath. Um, you spend your time making up all these worlds and you think they make you happy but in the end what's going to make you happy is living in the world the way it's going to unfold so I'm not telling you to stop 
dreaming and stop fantasizing. Tom Willing is very attractive and I understand. <laughs> Wait till you see Supernatural. But I'm telling you to be patient because things will be amazing and a thousand times better than your 13-year-old brain could possibly write. Oh, P.S., Find and burn your Lance Bass pillowcase. In college, your mom will use it to make fun of you to all of your college friends. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Shelby. Welcome back from everyone in the Netalogs, even Dwight, probably. <laughs> all right. From Peaches and Hot Sauce, Johnny O'Mara. Yeah! Uh, hello. Uh, so I wrote this because these, um, the characters in this are the only two, uh, impressions that I can do. <laughs> From WBEZ Chicago. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. As he said these familiar words, he knew that something wasn't right. Suddenly, the ground began to tremble violently, as if something enormous were drilling its way through the Earth's crust. The tremors became more violent, an earthquake or not, Ira Glass knew that he had to escape his high-rise studio <laughs> before the building came toppling down. Thinking of no one but himself, he rushed to the fire escape. Suck it, Tori Malatia, Ira Glass shouted as he defenestrated his former boss to clear a path to the stairwell. <clears throat> With two more floors to go, his path was blocked by This American Life producers Alex Bloomberg and Ben Calhoun. <laughs> Alex was lying on the landing of the next flight with a broken leg while Ben tried to fashion a splint from two mic stands and some old audio tape. <laughs> Wanting to save his own life and nothing more, Ira Glass knew he had only one option. He began charging down the stairs as quickly as he could. When he finally reached the landing, he used all of his momentum to slam Ben's skull into the hard brick wall. <laughs> killing him instantly and leaving a splattering of blood and gray matter on Ira's sport coat. His next step landed squarely on Alex's broken leg, ensuring he wouldn't be getting in the way again. <laughs> the building tumbled to the ground just as he pushed his way through the lobby door. Whatever was happening had laid waste to the entire city. The remains of the beautiful metropolis stretched out as far as the eye could see. Without even attempting to call, Ira Glass knew that he was free from the burden of his wife, Anahid, and his dog, Piney. <laughs> They were finally dead. <laughs> Act one, Maiden Manflatten. The story of one man's attempt to clean up his love life in a city of rubble, Ira Glass said aloud to no one. In the distance, only one structure remained. The large metal sphere dominated the landscape and the gigantic eye on top gazed directly at Ira. He knew where that was where he needed to be. The closer he got, the worse the destruction became. Dead bodies littered the landscape. Ira Glass stood at the foot of what he now knew to be an enormous spherical tank. Strung up from four of its trident-shaped lasers were the bodies of the world's most fearsome fighting team. <laughs> Act two, zeros in a half shell. What happens when one man realizes that he has no one to rely on but himself? 
A ramp extended from the center of the Technodrome, and onto it stepped the most perfect specimen of a man that Ira Glass had ever seen. His exposed biceps were rippling as the wind blew his cape behind him like a beacon of sexuality. His dark eyes, barely visible behind his metal helmet, surveyed the wasteland that was once New York City. Ira Glass deftly grabbed the still-chomping head of one of the destroyed Mouser robots and lobbed it directly at the man. It flew at his head, decapitating him instantly. His body fell limp to the ground. Behind his dead body stepped, the lo- stepped a large, bald man who remained in the shadows. <clears throat> who has killed the Shredder? <laughs> Rang the sweet voice of the bald man. Ira Glass walked up the, lamp- the ramp. It was I, Ira Glass, world-class journalist. (laughs) The bald man stepped out of the shadows and Ira saw the glistening brain in his stomach. (laughs) Act three, it came from dimension sex. One man... (laughs) One man's inability to control his animal instincts. (laughs) Come closer to me, I want to feel your body. Whispered Krang from the belly of the biosuit. Ira walked up slowly, unsure whether he should be concentrating on the face of the biosuit or the brain in its stomach. Luckily for him, Krang wasted no time in showing him where his attention belonged. Krang pulled Ira Glass toward him with his tentacles. Before Ira had the chance to admire the impressive dexterity of the moist brain, his belt had been unbuckled and his pants were around his ankles. It's as if the biosuit were created with the sole purpose of place, placing Krang in the prime position to receive a generous donation from the Nebish broadcaster. <laughs> Time stood still as Ira and Krang became one perfect being, neither knowing how long they were entwined in passionate lovemaking. Days? Weeks? Years? All they knew was that they would never spend another moment apart for the rest of their lives. Standing ovation for Johnny O'Mara. Holy shit. That was awesome. Thank you, Johnny. Someone's got to go back. Was I in glass just here? All right, guys. World-class Magic the Gathering player, Nate Bechtel. Yeah! I was thinking that whole time, don't be next, don't be next. Shit. Alright, uh, I'm also someone who thought of a good idea and then realized they really couldn't write fan fiction, but then just had a lot more ideas that they could make into a list. <laughs> and so. <laughs> Take that, Nate! <laughs> I'm sorry, he's the foundation of what I'm doing. He is a man to be admired and loved. Um, uh, alright, uh, so I'm gonna start out with the slash fiction section. First one. A Lego guy and a Playmobil guy starring in Love's Pieces Don't Always Fit. (laughs) (laughs) Then, The Iron Giant and Gypsy Danger starring in Jaeger Bombs Away. Marmaduke and Scooby-Doo and giving the dog a bone. <laughs> this 
is for Eric. This is all is. <laughs> then Scotty and Scruffy boldly going. <laughs> I'm so dumb. I wrote this one uh, in just a second. A weeping angel and one of those garden gnomes from that one Goosebumps episode. <laughs> in rock hard. <laughs> then, uh... Agent J, Captain Steve Hiller, Bagger Vance, and Dr. Robert Neville, and where there's a will, there is a way. <laughs> Magneto and Iron Man in Opposites Attract. Yeah! <laughs> Mr. Freeze and Elsa in The Icing on the Cake. <laughs> That was actually just a nice phrase. You guys made it dirty. <laughs> then, uh, Gob and, uh, sorry, Job. I wrote that. I'm a dummy. I love that show. Why did I say that? Job and Princess Leia in a Bluth Hope. <laughs> Conan the Barbarian and Rainbow Dash in, uh, Friendships with Benefit are magic. <laughs> I'm ashamed of that. <laughs> and then uh, the aristocrats, parentheses, grown up, and the 101 Dalmatians, parentheses, grown up, in it's banging cats and dogs. <laughs> and then this was all actually inspired by something that was completely not sexual, so now I have the friendship fix. And it was all inspired by Eric Garneau and Optimus Prime team up to fight crime and high five. <laughs> and then Destro, Deadpool, and the Phantom of the Opera team up to go mask shopping together. <laughs> and then Sherlock and Watson meet Spock and Bones, and they all solve crime in space. <laughs> and then... <laughs> no... <laughs> Uh, and then Ron Swanson and Rocky take on Putin and Ivan Drago. Uh, <laughs> and then the Dowager Countess meets Waldorf and Statler. <laughs> and then finally, my last one, uh, because I've been binging Battlestar Galactica, Senator John McCain meets Colonel Saul uh, Ty. They realize they're the same goddamn person. <laughs> <laughs> and those are the fan fiction ideas I came up with. Man, that's when we all talk about John McCain and, and Saul. That's super true. Also, when you said that Optimus Prime and Eric like hang out and high five, someone went awe. Like, yeah, that was, you, you know, was that like like a pity awe? <laughs> okay. I was touched. I the image of you high five in a robot. Yeah, you got the touch. You got the power. Yeah. All right. That's my five minutes of Transformers material. I'll be there for you all later. Um, anyway, thank you very much, Nate. From Peaches and Hot Sauce, James D'Amato. So you guys are getting a bonus because I'm being joined by my good friend Johnny O'Mara, who's going to help me through this. Uh, so fan fiction is really near and dear to my heart. It's really important to me. Uh, I might say it's it, fan fiction and myself are an OTP. Um, 
I was really, really awkward and nerdy, which is uh, funny considering how awkward and nerdy I still am today. Uh, but like when I was in middle school, I was in trouble. Thankfully, there was the world of Digimon slash fiction yeah. to keep me to keep me with imaginary friends who made out way too much. Um, but uh, I'd say my love of fan fiction really matured, if that can happen, uh, when Harry Potter fan fiction hit the yeah. scene. Because it hit the scene like a fucking lightning bolt. <laughs> Harry Potter still today has more fics than any other category of fan fiction on fanfiction.net, which I consider the authority. Screw you, live journal people. <laughs> I'm from the streets. Um... And uh, so, but I, I always read these things, but I was too afraid to write one. And thankfully, in high school, uh, I made some friends who did nothing but write fan fiction. Uh, and together, we celebrated what we love about fan fiction, and that is terrible fan fiction. Uh, fan fiction, if, if you're not a reader, uh, is better than reading somebody's diary. Uh, because people lie in their diaries. Uh, in fan fiction, you tell the absolute truth that you wish for yourself. Uh, so I'm now going to read this uh, character introduction uh, that we wrote together, uh, harnessing that. Her name was Crystal Chiffon. Hair the color of simmering shamite flowed down the ri a river of like a river of ice down her peerless back. Her eyes were a deeper black than her soul. But she usually wore contacts. Golden! Like the lies of love. Her measurements were 32, 26, 28. Uh, so this fan fiction is, uh, like, is 16 pages of some of the raunchiest, most disgusting stuff that I have ever written in my life. Um, but uh, I I'd like to... Just give you some sections of it. Um, so I believe uh, this starts off with you, Johnny. Okay. Wow, Hermione. Ron said. Over the summer, you seem to have developed C-cup personality traits. <laughs> We've been over this, Ron. Winked Hermione saucily, her brown eyes twinkling suggestively. Now are we going to stop our sexually charged bickering, or am I going to have to come over there and bicker you myself? <laughs> Ron's body had a brief fight over where his blood should end up. And the end result was his face turning as red as, as a very red leather couch. <laughs> This made his eyes bloodshot and unappealing. Gosh, Ron, your eyes just don't appeal to me. I'm going to find Harry. Where is that devilish stud? He's making snow angels with Ginny. But there's no snow. There's only mist. Yes. The mist angels will be pointless and insubstantial like their love. <laughs> Uh, one of the great things about fan fiction in the time when Harry Potter was still coming out is that we didn't know certain things about the Harry Potter universe. So a lot of people writing their fictions tried to guess uh, different things. And one of the best things about this is the fanfic community noticed that Blazabini did not have a gender for a long time. Ron was upset. Blazabini noticed this and walked towards him. A devilish plan forming in her brain. 
Hi, Weasley. He purred seductively. Hi, Zabini. Ron said confusedly. What's, what's up, man? She tossed her long hair over her shoulder. What do you mean, man? Who are you calling man? Uh, actually, uh... Ron glanced around him. I'm not sure. I could have sworn that you... Sworn what, dude? <laughs> Zabini glared at Ron, his Slytherin features dark and suspicious. I don't... Uh... Ron trailed <laughs> off, looking at Zabini's seductive lips, full chest... Curvy hips and erect. Wait, wait. Ron screamed. My brain is so confused. He ran off shrieking. Blaze watched him go. It smiled. And of course, uh, this brings us to not only guessing things about the universe, but the hot, hot slash sex, which is the best part of every fiction. Because it's, it's sex written by people who've never had sex. <laughs> And what could be better than guessing at something so instinctual and biological? Draco, the half-blood prince, chewed on his bottom lip nervously. Bits of skin flaked off onto his plate. Sweat drops rolled down his polished ivory forehead. Crab and Goyle, the half-blood princes, (laughs) uh, ate nearby. The Great Hall, the Chamber of Secrets, was full of students who ate and chattered and were possibly half-blood princes. (laughs) Draco knew that it was now or never, or maybe a little later. He stood onto the sliver and table, full of half-blood princes, his muscular thighs flexing. Attention, ladies and gentlemen. Half-blood princes? Any of you? Nope. I'll ask later. (laughs) He took a deep, gutsy, lusty, busty, musty, dusty, and rusty breath. I'm gay. (laughs) There was silence. Then Harry, the half-blood prince, stood up. By Merlin, I suddenly find that I'm gay too. Our sexual tension must explode. There were murmurings of potential half-blood princes throughout the hall. And then someone asked, But Draco, Mr. Malfoy, how did you discover your homosexuality? A glistening tear slipped down Draco's pearly cheek. I was ambling to the greenhouse when I saw the most sinful, soulful sight I had ever seen. There was beauty in its rawest form. Neville and Justin unclothed, reading ballads of passion and sorrow, exchanging heated glances. My heart trembled, but I found myself powerless against their forbidden appeal. I moved closer, stripping off my shirt. I grabbed Justin, feeling his marbled chest under my hands. I slid them over his skin and then massaged his lips with mine. Tasting him. Sampling his wares. <laughs> My stomach felt nauseous and anticipation. Then Neville came up from behind me, and my heart spasmed with desire. We were locked in an erotic embrace, a duel between passion and death. As I came inside them, I clutched my left arm in ecstasy. Neville revived me minutes later and rushed me to the hospital wing. But then it was too late. 
I was gay. <laughs> Seamus frowned. So heart attacks make you gay? Yes. They are powerful tools of persuasion. Seamus suddenly gasped. But, but, I had a heart attack once. I'm gay. I'm gay too, said Dean, the half-blood prince. (laughs) Colin and Dennis agreed. Draco and Harry rushed each other, and Seamus grabbed Dean. Disco lights flashed, and funky music began playing as clothes began flying about. We're gay half-blood princes, (laughs) shouted the students of Hogwarts in a... The students of Hogwarts, a school where half-blood princes were numerous and vague. (laughs) Snape pressed his fingers together and said, Yes, my puppets, dance. (laughs) So all 16 pages are still available on fanfiction.net if you feel like wasting your life. But thank you, guys. Thank you so much, James. This this uh, fan fiction has been a lot sexier than the last yeah. one. I don't, I don't know what happened. It's, ooh, I like that. New podcast coming soon, guys. Uh, we have another guest from the Chicago New York Comedy Fest, Mr. CJ Tour. It started like any other day. I had just been knocked unconscious by a gas-spewing purple sphere whose means of flight were suspect. <laughs> when I woke, the scene was ghastly. And Bulbasaur to my left. Also knocked out, Pidgeys were falling out of the sky like geodudes. <laughs> and Master Red Hat was scrambling to return us to the safety of our spheres. Before you could say Rapidash... I was home again inside my Pokeball. I was bruised, sore, and electrobuzzed, but luckily I was still on fire. <laughs> I crawled my way over to the couch in the library in hopes of catching a little rest before the next rumble or mystery dungeon. But that's when I saw him. Squirtle. I instantly recognized those big round eyes, that big round shell, those big round appendages. We stared at each other in free shock. This had never happened before. In the confusion of the explosions and the confusion attacks, <laughs> Master Red Hat must have accidentally put us in the same Pokeball. Just that I'd always dreamed. <laughs> it didn't take a Mew 2 to know that I'd been attracted to this amphibious Adonis for games now. But I'd never had a chance to let this water type know that he not only weakens my attacks, but weakens my knees. (laughs) I decided to use my initiative and say something. Nothing too forward, just a casual, welcoming Charmander. (laughs) He smiled. That kind of pleasant smile that uses three-fourths of his face. It seemed as if he was about to say something, but failed and giggled. Could it be? Could the attraction be mutual? I used copycat and giggled as well. Success. Squirtle took my finger nubs and attempted to intertwine them with his finger nubs. 
This was all happening so fast. We were just kids out of the egg. I didn't have the XP for this. A game meant for Charizards and Blastoise. But then he looked me in the eyes. Those big, beautiful brown eyes looked into mine, and all I could do was whisper, Charmander. (laughs) We moved to the bedroom. As we walked, the last beats of panic set in. I could just imagine what my parents would think. Me, a fire type, associating with someone from the other side of the elements. I could just hear my mother now. What would she say? Charizard, probably. (laughs) In that kind yet condescending way she has. I remembered my training, all those health videos they show you. STDs, don't catch them all. What if I caught something and it stunted my evolution or made it stop burning when I peed? Wait. What was I thinking? This was Squirtle, my beloved, not some floozy who's been around the arena like that tramp Jigglypuff. We were two consenting pocket monsters who shared a deep attraction and just for one night, maybe we shared a magic red and white ball that could contain our passion. As I laid him on the bed, I remarked on his beauty. A living, breathing creature with the power of nature like a haiku given life. But nowhere near as short. Seriously, I was impressed with how well endowed he was, considering he was Asian. We embraced in a way that would most certainly be cut out of the American version. But the mere mature content was hot. It was glorious, and it was... Predictably steamy. We synchronized like Game Boys. We were a swirl of ruby and sapphire. It was the first time in history that Pokemon was played for a stretch of countless hours without it being sad in any way. When it was over, we held each other in our paws. So exhausted, we had to use rest. I looked down at my second player and suddenly a wild feeling appeared. I had an emotion that was rarer than anything one could possibly find in a pack of cards. And I had to express it. I know it was our first night together, but it also might be our last. And silence was for Mr. Mimes. I had to tell him how I felt. I rolled over on my side and faced him. I stroked his cheek, and with a trembling voice that betrayed my outright conviction, I declared, Charmander. (laughs) He looked back at me and, with a sly smile, said, Ditto. That was fantastic. Thank you, CJ. Uh, We have one more story and then a couple more songs for you tonight. Mr. Pat O'Rourke from... Hi. 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 Uh, before I get started, uh, I'd like to thank the Nerdlogs for, you know, letting Peaches and Hot Sauce do our thing here. Uh, it's so cool that to watch my friends get up and, and make new friends with all of you guys. So, um, oh, hey, that's the name of my podcast. Shameless plug, guys. Um, all right. So let's get to business. All right. Uh, before I get into the, into the thesis of my presentation, I will preface it with this statement. 
I plan on naming my firstborn child or my second dog after Michael Jordan. <laughs> it's very true. That's how big of a fan I am. And uh, now that we have that out of the way, I'll make the following claim. Adding Michael Jordan to any film or television series will make it exponentially better. I will give you some examples, and if there's any time left at the end of this, you can try to throw out your own movies and disprove this theory, but it won't be possible. All right, let's start with TV. During season six of The West Wing... Then Secretary of State Leo McGarry has a tragic heart attack and needs to be replaced. If President Jed Bartlett chose Michael Jordan instead of C.J. Craig, he would uh, not only have one of the best clutch time players in the history of the game, but we, the audience, would not have to suffer through the second round of the love affair between Danny Cancun and C.J. Craig. Additionally... When Josh Lyman becomes Matt Santos' campaign manager for his presidential run, Michael Jordan would have made the perfect running mate and resulting VP in place of Leo McGarry because he has two Olympic gold medals and the fact that he is still alive. All right. That's for all you West Wing fans out there. Um, all right. Television series number two, Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> Who says Michael Jordan didn't go Super Saiyan during Game 5 of the 1989 Eastern Conference Finals? He doesn't have hair, so who knows? He could have defeated Frieza, Perfect Cell, and Majin Buu uh, through all of their many transformations without so much breathing. Also, while we're playing around with the Dragon Ball Magna, I suggest we remove Dragon Ball GT... Just like we should ignore the time Michael spent with the Washington Wizards. Uh, all right, let's get into movies now. I think I've proven my point with television. The Matrix Revolutions. Instead of Neo fighting thousands of Mr. Smiths to the climactic ending, he would just need to fight one Michael Jordan. Also, there would be no need for so much CGI. Uh, let's see. The Big Lebowski. The Dude, MJ, Walter, Donnie, Brant. Now that's the perfect starting lineup. <laughs> Star Wars, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Move over, Palpatine. There's a new highness in town. <laughs> Remember the epic battle between the Emperor and Yoda? Now remove the Emperor and insert Michael Jordan. <laughs> Game on. So this brings me to my next point. It's it's something I call the Jordan-Hanks correlation. As a general rule, Michael Jordan can always, and I mean always, replace a character played by the actor Tom Hanks. Let me begin. The Terminal. Michael Jordan is the only guy I would want to watch hang out in an airport. Forrest Gump. It is already basically a documentary of Michael Jordan's amazing superstar life, but with less golf. League of Their Own. Now, this is the perfect storm for an amazing Michael Jordan vehicle. Not only does it present the aforementioned Jordan-Hanks correlation, but it's a movie about baseball. Michael Jordan's unicorn sport. The public wants to no needs to see him succeed. 
<laughs> okay. So that's those are my examples. Does anybody have a... Groundhog Day. Uh, Michael Jordan retired three times. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry, what was that? <laughs> a, I've never seen it. Is that is that terrible? I'm I'm sure that uh Jordan's got a list of things. I don't know. I've never what I don't know. I've never seen Schindler's list. Yeah, well, Kazam. Kazam. Oh Kazam, come on. <laughs> Alright, thank you. Thank you so much, Pat. All right, guys, we've heard from a lot of folks involved with Peaches and Hot Sauce. Go to peachesandhotsauce.com, enjoy their videos, enjoy yeah. their podcasts. They're all wonderful. Everyone we talked is wonderful. Uh, I'm going to play a song before we bring the band back up. Is that okay with everybody? Yeah. Great. Guitar <laughs> Thanks, Dwight. Um, cool. So one thing I noticed learning all the songs that we played tonight is... Uh, in pretty much every case, the cover is better. Like, I don't know if you ever heard the original It's My Life or the original, um, I mean, I'm sure some of you heard the original Hurt. The covers are better. Like, something about the performance or the production or whatever, like, the, the covering artist brings out something really special and cool that the original just didn't have. I'm going to play an opposite version of that. And I'm going to start by saying this. And no offense to any religious people out there. Do you know how I know that there is no God? <laughs> Bruce Springsteen has never had a number one hit, but Manfred Mann had one with his song. Manfred Mann's Blinded by the Light is an abortion of synthesizers. It's what happens... It's what happens when five British people buy a keyboard and decide to fucking play around with it. It's awful. It completely misses anything special about the original song. Now, here's the thing. Most of you don't even know that Springsteen wrote this song. Most of you have probably never heard the Springsteen version. That's okay. Bruce himself would tell you that his version actually not that great. He wrote it because Columbia Records would not put out his first album without a track that they thought could be a hit. Now, they signed Bruce because they thought that he would be the next Bob Dylan. So he locked himself in his room with a rhyming dictionary and wrote Blinded by the Light. In a way, Blinded by the Light is Bob Dylan fan fiction. It's, it's Bruce trying to be Bob. And you know, honestly, not succeeding. It's packed with syllables and imagery and nonsense. And it's a song about wild teenage sexuality, which guess what? You wouldn't get that from Manfred Man, would you? Because their version is fucking terrible. I really hate Man for Man. So, I, we're taking it back, guys. This is an arrangement from uh, Springsteen's MTV Unplugged. This is Blinded by Light. Like I said, it's not a great song. Maybe not even a good song. But it's a lot better when the boss did it. the hot 
hot spot and snapping his fingers, clapping his hands. And so the flesh pot mascot was tied into a lover's knot with a whatnot in her hand. Now a young scout with a slingshot finally found a tender spot and threw his lover in the sand. And some bloodshot forgive-me-not whispers, daddy's with an earshot, save the buckshot, turn up the band. Yeah, she was blinded by the light, cut loose like a deuce, another runner.
been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.